So for the last two weeks, we have studied some encounters between Jesus, the Jewish leaders, and a Jewish crowd. The admonishment that he delivered, and, and then the teaching that he gave after the encounter, they really centered on three things. God's law, man's tradition, and the true nature of defilement. If you missed those sermons, I would encourage you to go back and go back and take a listen. You got an iPhone, you got know a little purple podcast app, you click there, type in FBC Crosby, you can find like the last 40 sermons, something like that there. If you're an Android person, no, if you're an Android person, you download the Podbean app, it's Podbean, and then you go in there and you can download it that same way. But I encourage you to go back and take a listen. But in short, what happened was Jesus, Jesus was admonishing the scribes and the Pharisees, because they had allowed their own traditions, their own concepts of religion, to encroach upon God's holy law. As the only and supreme authority in all things with regards to life and faith and salvation, God's word stands alone. To allow anything to encroach upon it, to allow anything to rise to the level of the authority that God's word has, to do anything other than to take our traditions and our religions and our ordinances, to do anything other than to take those and to test them mercilessly against Holy Scripture, to force it into a proper place of submission, will lead us to a place where God's Word is void in our life. It's of no use to us whatsoever. And that's exactly what these men had done. And so Jesus confronted them in that. And then he turned and he addressed the crowd. He called the, the rest of the people over to him. These weren't the religious leaders. These were the people who were just there to see what this was all about. Many of them just seeking healing, just wanting the gifts that came from Jesus. But he spoke to them like this. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus was explaining to the people that it is not the things out there that make you unclean. It's not just the things in the world, the things in your environment, the things in the way that you are brought up. Those aren't the things which make you unclean and make you defiled before God. It is the things that spring up from your filthy heart. It is a sinful and rebellious heart producing all manner of evil. That is what makes you unclean. That is what separates you from God. And that God's law, the intention behind God's law, and the external portions to God's law was to paint a picture. To paint a picture of his holiness and to show us how far, how far short we've fallen. It was to paint a picture that would lead people like a signpost, directing them towards the Messiah when he showed up. But the problem was that the people fell in love with the signs. They fell in love with the shadows, and they rejected the substance. In the evening service, I talked about this, being like a man that's traveling down 45, and he just stops at a random Bucky's sign, and he's shocked to learn he can't buy beaver nuggets there because he stopped at the sign. It was pointing him to something, something more, something of more substance, something of use. But they didn't do that. They camped out. They didn't keep coming, completely missing Jesus. They camped out instead of coming all the way to where it was leading. The reason that they stopped short, the reason they stopped with the ordinances and the traditions and the law and didn't come all the way to Jesus Christ was because to come to him was to confess that the problem is us. It's to confess that we are fundamentally broken in our sinful nature, that we inherited from our father Adam just depravity, 
and then we can't fix it. There's no amount of laws, there's no amount of religion, there's no amount of work, there's no amount of good deeds, that there's nothing we can do, so we must look to someone greater outside of us. We must come to him in a posture of absolute submission. But natural man can't do that. In our sinful state, we can't do that. We much prefer to think of ourselves, much like the Jews. See, the Jews thought that they were already holy and righteous because they were God's chosen people. So they viewed religion as nothing more than a constant effort to keep you filthy people over there. Just make sure that your sin doesn't rub off on me, and then I'm just going to remain pure. God's going to continue to bless me. We like that thought, that we've got it figured out. If I could just get my neighbor to keep his trash in his own yard, then I'll be all right. But Jesus was confronting him right at this point, Con- making clear to him how backwards this was. He was just shattering any, any false belief, any false sense of security that, security that they had gathered. And in this, he was abrogating the ceremonial laws. He was saying those external things, those external walls that have separated you, the Jews, from the Gentiles, from all the unclean people in the world, those are being torn down. And I'm showing to you that unless you come all the way to Jesus Christ, unless you come to a point of being willing to die to yourself and come all the way to Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter that you're from the bloodline of Abraham. It doesn't matter that you belong to the right synagogue. It doesn't matter that you offer sacrifices in the temple. If you don't come all the way to Christ Jesus, you'll in the end be completely and totally lost. But most people within this audience, they weren't going to hear this word. It was a stumbling block to them. It was an offense. It was a scandal. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we read what Jesus did next. We continue in Mark chapter 7. We're reading in verse 24. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child laying in bed and the demon gone. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father, we recognize that these are not ordinary words on a page. We recognize that these are not the thoughts or the ideas of men. We recognize that what we hold in our hands is the authoritative, sufficient, inerrant word of the living God, demanding absolute understanding, submission, and obedience. We pray that you lead us there. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now apart from a few trips across the Sea of Galilee, for the majority of Jesus' two-year earthly ministry thus far, he has been focusing in Jewish territory. There have been a couple of trips where he'd go across the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis or somewhere like that. But for the most part, his focus had been right there exclusively with the Jews. Now we might imagine that on the heels of this harsh confrontation, the number of harsh confrontations that Jesus has had with the Jewish leaders 
and on the basis of their expressed desire to have him destroyed, we wouldn't be surprised to hear about Jesus going north into Gentile territory. And yet, we're not told explicitly that that's why he left. In fact, I believe that what's happened here is that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he is being led there specifically for this encounter for the, with this woman. It wasn't that he was fleeing from something. It was that he was going to teach us something. As he just took down the ceremonial laws. He just did away with the dietary ordinances. He was now showing us that not only are all things now clean, all people are as well. I believe that that's what Jesus was going to, going to do as he traveled out of the Jewish territory north, the territory north. And he went to this place called Tyre. And Sidon, these Gentile cities north of Israel, about 35 miles northwest of Galilee, along the, along the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and Phoenicia. It's modern-day Lebanon. These cities were founded like 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. And we read about them in the Old Testament. These were Canaanite people. These were the people that God had ordered Joshua and the Israelites to chase completely from the land. God, knowing how very, very wicked these people had become, the evil that was within them, and knowing the adulterous hearts of his own people, knowing how easy it would be for the Jews to get ensnared in the worship of Baal or his female companion, Ashtaroth, these false gods that originated in Phoenicia. He knew what a snare these people would be to him, and so he had ordered his people to, you must do away with them completely. And yet they failed. They stopped short. They stopped short of obedience, and the consequences would not be minor. In fact, we see this on full display, I believe, in the life of, of evil King Ahab of Israel. We see that he fell in love with a woman named Jezebel. Most of you are familiar with that story, but we read in 1 Kings 16 through, uh, 16, 31 through 33. Ahab looked for his wife Jezebel. I'm sorry, Ahab, Ahab, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar to Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Those of you that are familiar with Ahab and Jezebel, you know what an absolute menace this woman was to the true followers of God, this daughter of a king of, of Sidon. And Tyre was no better. In fact, the, the Jewish historian, Josephus, he tells us that there was no more bitter enemy to the Jewish people than the people of Tyre. Now, God had spoken a word over these people, a prophecy of destruction, over the nations of Tyre and Sidon. And eventually that destruction came. The hands of Alexander the Great and then Nebuchadnezzar. But by the time that Jesus came onto the scene, they had been rebuilt by Rome. These were providences of Rome. And they were powerful places right there along the, right there along the Mediterranean Sea. And there was still no love loss between the Jewish people and these Gentiles to the north. And so it says that he entered into a house and he did not want anyone to know yet because he could, but he could not be hidden. I'm sorry, Syria has popped up on my thing and I can't make her go away. I'm for real. I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure I understand either. <laughs> yeah, she heard me talking about Android people there. She's going to stay away. Gee whiz. Who knew Satan got in my Siri? All right. That's why I was distracted. I couldn't even read my text because Siri was sitting here talking. I was like, please don't be loud. All right. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So for the last several chapters in Mark's gospel, we have, we have noticed that Jesus and his disciples, they've been looking for a place of just retreat and rest, and they could never find it. Every time Jesus would take them somewhere, there was an encounter waiting for them, an opportunity to preach and to teach and to heal. 
And we see here that he's, he's making this steady movement. First they moved kind of away from the synagogues, and now they're moving even away from the public places into private homes. And yet even in Gentile Phoenicia, this, this wasn't possible. You'll remember that the people were coming from all over, from the east of the, Jordan, of the Jordan River. They were coming from Tyre and Sidon when they heard about Jesus' healing. We read about this in Mark 3, 8, after he healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders went out, and they conspired that they were going to have him destroyed. We see that the people, they had come from all around. And surely those people, as they came and they encountered Jesus, as they received healing, surely they ran back home and told other people. And now that Jesus has come to them, there was no way he was going to be able to hide. And so they came from all around. Verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. So it says that the woman was a Gentile. The, the, the word there in the original translation is Hellenist. It can also be translated as a Greek. Now Matthew tells us that she's a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician by birth. This tells us that she's not a Greek by origin, but that she's a Canaanite woman that is adopted. Greek language, Greek traditions, maybe even the Greek religions. This is what this woman is that's, that's coming to Jesus. And so by, every, by almost every imaginable standard, this woman is completely, in the eyes of the Jews, unclean. She has no standing before a Jewish rabbi. Number one, because she's a woman. Women weren't ordinarily given audiences like this. Number two, because she's a Gentile, automatically making her, making her unclean. Not only is she a Gentile, but she was a Canaanite. Among those people that were meant to be destroyed, they're meant to be dealt with, and yet were a thorn in the side of God's people. She came from a region that was just fraught with idolatry and pagan worship. Among, amongst the most bitter enemies of the Jewish people, and then, of course, she had a daughter with an unclean spirit. Matthew tells us that she was severely oppressed by this demon. This woman really was as outside an outsider as you could ever meet. Unclean, with no standing amongst the Jewish people. But this woman didn't care. She had heard about Jesus. She had heard about what he had done for other people. She knew that she had a need that nobody else in the whole world could meet. Now, you, you remember in... In John's gospel, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, after he's walked on water, you remember that Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The question is, does that apply to unclean Gentiles too? Or had the Jewish Messiah only come to the nation of Israel? Did the promise that any who come to the Lord, that any to come to Jesus Christ in faith, is the promise that he would receive them and never cast them out, does it apply to an unclean woman like this? And by extension, does it apply to people in this room? Do we have any promise that God would receive us in Christ Jesus? So she comes and she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She didn't care. She didn't care what her status was amongst the Jewish people. She didn't care that he might turn her away. She didn't care that he might be repulsed at her uncleanliness. She, like so many others, she was driven by a deep need of desperation. Beloved, I've tried to drive this home every time we come to the, one of these healing stories. God routinely, regularly uses the brokenness, the suffering, the weight of heaviness in this life to drive you to his son. It's not the point of this morning's sermon, but I do think we would all do well to be reminded of this. Not necessarily for ourselves. But because when we look out there at the people that we love, when we look at the people that we love and we see them suffering, we see them under the weight of sin, we see the burden upon them from this world, we want to do everything we can to eliminate that suffering. Oftentimes making that our number one priority. The church may I submit to you that there may be times when it is best by God and it is best by those that we love to allow them to feel that weight. 
knowing that God causes suffering to work for the good of those that love him. Knowing that by that very same weight, that very same suffering, he may be calling the person that you love to his son, Christ Jesus. And while the temporary afflictions of this lifetime, they may sting, and they may sting a lot, and it may be harder for you to watch than it is for them to endure, just perhaps what God is doing is he's going to use that suffering and that pain to save them from the fires of hell. Matthew tells us the woman was crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. The woman knew that she needed mercy. Righteous people don't ask for mercy. They ask for justice. Righteous people stand before God and say, God, give me what I'm owed. I deserve better. But sinners know that, they owe, that they're owed nothing. Sinners cry out for mercy. Much like, much, much like the tax collector that we found in the temple. as He cries out, beating his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're a beggar. That's often my line to people when they ask if we think we're better than them. You think you're better than me because you believe in Jesus. You think you're better than me because you belong to the church. You think you're better than me because you know the living God. Routinely, I say, and this is not an original line, I stole it. No, I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where I found some food. This woman came begging because she knew she had earned nothing. She didn't come to Jesus in demand. She fell down. She knew that she was a sinner, and she knew that he was more than a miracle worker. She knew that he was more than a wise teacher. She uses the messianic term, son of David. We're going to see the same term used when we get to Mark 10, and we're introduced to a guy called Blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus, he similarly knew that he had need, and he cried out, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Great insight on behalf of both, both this Jewish Bart and this Gentile woman. Great insight that they recognize that this was the Messiah. This was the promised one. This was the one sent from heaven to restore order and healing, to reconstruct all that has been torn apart throughout the entire cosmos. They knew that he was the Messiah, and she knew that he was Lord. She calls on him Lord. Now, the word Lord, it can be used just as a show of respect to any man, much like the way we use the word sir today. But we're also told by Mark that he, she falls down at his feet. Surely there's some sense of wonder and, and worship and reverence here. You've got to believe that she recognizes that this is the Lord, and he demands absolute submission and honor and praise. So she comes to him with the absolute perfect posture, knowing that she has earned nothing before the living God, knowing that she does not want mercy, uh, justice, that what she wants is mercy, knowing that she's standing before the Holy One of God, knowing that he alone is worthy of her praise. Absolute perfect posture, and yet Matthew tells us that he did not answer a word. He did not speak a word. It isn't that he didn't hear it wasn't that he was ignoring her, as we see as the story goes on. He had a gracious plan for this woman. But boy, can you relate to this. You come to God with the absolute perfect posture. You know that you're a sinner, and you know that he owes you nothing. You know that you can't fix your own problem. You know that he is the living God, and that from his abundant supply, he can meet your every need. You fall on your knees before him in praise and honor and worship confessing your sin and asking desperately for the thing that you need worse, worse than anything else in all the world, and he doesn't say a word. And you sit there in your prayer closet, and you scream into the heavens, God, are you there, and do you care? Matthew also tells us that his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, we aren't told their motivation. We might like to believe what happened was they had compassion for this woman. We might like to believe that what happened was they were telling Jesus, would you please heal this woman's son, uh, daughter so that she can go in peace? 
But that doesn't seem like their nature, does it? It seems more likely what happened was they were annoyed. They didn't like the attention that this woman was drawing to them as she followed after them and cried for mercy. And they would have seen no way that this woman had any part in the kingdom of God. They would have seen no way that Jesus would have come for a woman like this. And so it seems to me that they just wanted Jesus to shoo her away. But Jesus had come for more than a healing story. This is about more than just a healing. This is about an opportunity for proclamation. You see, this trip that Jesus is taking, he begins up in the region of Tyre and Sidon, but it would last a while because he would meander back down by the Sea of Galilee and around into the Decapolis. But throughout this trip, we never really read about any focused preaching ministry that Jesus did during this time. And yet what he finds here in this encounter with this Gentile woman, this unclean woman, woman, he finds an opportunity to make an announcement, an announcement that affects every single one of us in this room. It's an opportunity for proclamation. He could have just healed her. He could have immediately healed her when she walked up. He could have just allowed her to touch the hem of his garment, her daughter to be healed, and for her to go home and receive what she had asked for. But he knew that what we needed more than seeing him heal someone else, what this woman needed more than the healing of her daughter, the cleansing of her daughter, was to hear what he was about to teach, this proclamation that he was about to make. And now, because this woman was Greek, People a whole lot smarter than me tell me that this was probably one of the very few times that the recorded words in Scripture were actually spoken in Greek by Jesus. Jesus normally would have spoken and taught in Aramaic. They think that probably he spoke these words in Greek. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. At this point, she's probably thinking, I liked you better when you didn't speak. I've come to you with a proper posture. I've come to you pleading and begging on my knees. And you say what? God's words are offensive to us sometimes. God's words cut us deeply sometimes. It's clear that what, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's speaking in parable. These are those, those enigmatic type statements that he would make that would leave the crowd and oftentimes the disciples just absolutely confused. So we, we do well to ask ourselves, who are the children, who are the dogs, and what is the bread? Is Jesus going to call his disciples to the side now and explain them? That's what he normally did, right? Normally he would speak in parable, the crowd would be confused, he would call his people to the side, and then he would teach them. And we're not given that kind of teaching here, and so we're stuck to wrestle with this some. But we may find some answers in what Jesus said to them first, as recorded in Matthew. So before he spoke to the woman, Matthew tells us that he turned to his disciples and he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We've heard him speak similarly. Remember when he sent out the apostles on their first missionary journey? He told them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Seems to me that what he's doing here and is speaking to this woman, he's, he's teaching her, he's teaching the crowd, he's teaching us today about the priority of his mission to the Jews, to the lost sheep of Israel. Surely those are the children that Jesus is speaking about in these parables. As for the dog, it was common in Jesus' day for the Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. And yes, that's every bit as offensive as you would imagine. It is never nice to call somebody a dog in any culture. Now, we don't get the full weight of that today because in America, we love our dogs. People spend a fortune buying and feeding and grooming and caring for their dogs. They let them sleep in their house. Some people let them sleep in their bed. They take them on trips. You go on the internet and take those stupid quizzes to see what dog is your spirit animal. And they just love dogs. But in Jesus' day, first century Palestine, 
You didn't find a whole lot of dogs as house, house pets. There, there was occasionally the time when you would find one, and you'll see that in the lady's response. There was at least some sense of that going on, but it was not the norm. For most of those people, dogs were unclean, scavenging mongrels. They ate dead stuff and trash. They were looked down upon. You didn't love them. You didn't care for them. That's why. That's part of what made the, the poor man Lazarus so unclean and it's such a sad figure in the story that Jesus told because the dogs came and licked his sores. So what, what the Jews were saying as they spoke to the unclean, the uncircumcised Gentiles, they were saying, you are as much a pest as a mangy mutt running around the streets eating trash and harassing livestock because you are outside of the covenant people, because you are not from the bloodline of Abraham. Because you're not of the promised people that have been promised this good land. You're like a dog to us. So we have to ask, was Jesus really referring to this woman in this way? Was he really intending to insult this woman in this way? Now, there's a lot of preachers out there that I really respect. One of them being the late, great Dr. R.C. Sproul. I, I respect that man. And he tells you that what's happening here was that Jesus was actually lessening the blow. See, there's, there's one phrase that you can use in the Greek for dog, and it's kuon. It means a wild cur, like just an out-of-control mutt. That's the word that we see Jesus using in Matthew 7, 6, where he says, Do not give to dogs, that's kuon, do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Paul uses the same word, kuon, in Philippians 3, 2, and he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. But the word that Jesus uses here for this woman is kunarion. It means little dog, maybe a pet dog. So what a lot of people insinuate from this is that Jesus is not insulting the woman in her uncleanliness as a Gentile. He's not calling her filthy. He's not even calling her a dog. That this is a term of endearment, much like you're referring to your little daughter as your little lamb. I, I don't think that's right. Maybe. I may be wrong. I believe what Jesus was doing, he was speaking this Jewish axiom with the full weight. He wasn't trying to crush this woman. He was not trying to chase this woman away. This was a test. Would this woman continue would she persist, or would she get offended and walk away? Would she hear the offense in Jesus' word? Would she turn her back and say, enough of this. I didn't stand here. I don't kneel here before you for you to tell me what I am. I came for help, and you won't offer it. I'm gone. Now, what Jesus was really teaching, once you get past the reference to the dog, what he was really teaching was this, that I've come first to the lost sheep of Israel. My priority is to reach and teach the Jewish people. To preach the gospel to them. They are the people to whom God gave the law. They are the people to whom God gave his promises. They are the people to, that God sent his Messiah to. They are the chosen people. We see God speaking about them in very favorable terms. As he sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and to call his people out. He says this, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. The relationship between God and his people Israel was special and unique. God's calling and his promises, they are irrev irrevocable. They will not be taken back. So what Jesus is saying here, it appears, is saying that it's for me to get sidetracked from my mission, my primary mission to the Jews, for me to get sidetracked in bringing this gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, and to turn and instead focus on the Gentiles would be as inappropriate as taking bread from the children that I'm meant to care for and throwing it to the dogs. I don't care whether it's a wild dog or whether it's a house pet. That would be irresponsible. That would be neglectful. He's saying, I've come first to this Jewish people. Now, the woman's response does not show offense. 
nor does it show that she's trying to argue against this Jewish priority to Jesus' mission. Instead, she says this. She answers him, yes, Lord. We read last week from Acts 10, where Peter, from among the inner three, clearly a leader in the church, when he got a word from God to rise and kill and eat animals, which had previously been seen as unclean, his response was, never. Thanks, but no thanks, Lord. And yet now we see this woman, Gentile woman, meeting Jesus for the first time, having only heard about him, not having the benefit of the laws and the ordinances and the sacrifices. She hears this word, being told that, look, I didn't come first to you. I've not come at this time for you and for your people. And instead of getting offended, her immediate response is, yes, Lord, because her need was greater than her pride. What she needed from Christ Jesus was more than to have her ego stroked. It was more to be told that she was special. She needed what he had, and so she persisted. She knew that his words were right, even when they cut deeply. That the words of Jesus are always true and right. And so she continued. She persisted because she says, she answers him. Verse 28, yes, Lord, yet even, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's not prideful. She doesn't take offense. She presses on, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, I'm an unclean Gentile. And compared to your special relationship, your covenant promises with the people called Israel, I am like a dog. But even the dogs get the crumbs that fall to the floor. Now our answer is it's pretty straightforward. It's kind of like Jesus' answer last week about the way that food works. You eat it, you go through, and it passes. It's a pretty straightforward answer. She's saying, look, dogs get to eat crumbs. We do have a dog in our house. We've got a dog named Charlie, and we like Charlie. Charlie's, Charlie's a good, important part of the family, but Charlie doesn't get to eat people food. And she sure doesn't get to eat it from the table. That doesn't mean she doesn't try. She's a tall dog. She's a slick dog. She can get up on the couch. As a matter of fact, we have found out that every time Abby fixes her grilled cheese, she cuts off the corners of her cheese and throws it to the dog. I don't know why, and that's not acceptable. But So Charlie does get some people food, but as a general rule, we don't want Charlie eating food because I don't want her sitting there begging while I'm trying to eat. My girls are very protective of Charlie. We've had many fights over how harsh I speak to Charlie when she sits there stinking while I'm trying to have my sandwich. But when we eat our meals, there's going to be crumbs that fall to the floor, maybe even scraps that fall to the floor. Charlie's welcome to those. I don't jump on the floor and fight her for them. I've had my fill. I'm satisfied. The Greek translation of this, that's what he's saying. He's not just saying let them eat their bread. He's saying let them be satisfied. We're satisfied. She's allowed to have those crumbs. But she does not get to eat the bread that's up on, up on the table. I'm not going to take the bread from my children and throw it down on the floor to her. Floor to her. But the point that this woman is making is much, much deeper than just one about bread. What she's saying is, she, she's displaying, for one, this Gentile woman, she's displaying just an incredible understanding, an understanding much greater than the apostles have with regards to Jesus' overall message. She understands that the bread is the blessings of the kingdom of God. The bread is the things that humanity have been longing for ever since the fall. That the bread is the redemption and salvation that comes only through the gospel of Christ Jesus. So this outsider, this Gentile woman, without the law, without the ordinances, without the sacrifices, she understands. She understands what this bread represents. And she understands better than the apostles the word that Paul would speak later. God had given her ears to hear. Even now that she could hear, without explanation, without Jesus calling her aside and explaining the parable, she was able to understand what he was saying. Paul would express this beautifully years later as he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. She understands that when Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, she knows that first doesn't mean only. She recognizes more fully than these people that call Abraham as their father. She's able to recognize the promises that God originally made. Go all the way back to the beginning. As God was making these promises to Father Abraham. In fact, if we go back to really that pivotal moment where God has told him to, to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son Isaac, and he takes him up there, and he's ready to do it. He shows his heart of faith by his willingness to do this incredibly difficult thing that God's called him to do. And then God provides the ram, the, the uh, suitable sacrifice. And then God speaks these words, Genesis 22, 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, listen now, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. She recognizes that God's original plan from the very beginning was that he would bless this people, this chosen people. They weren't the greatest. They weren't the most faithful. They weren't the most holy. I choose you as a people, Israel. You will be my people, and I will be your God, and I'm going to bless you so that you then may be a blessing to the nations. Through you, the gifts that I give to you, the blessings that I bring to you will be a blessing to all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that that's what God was doing. Now, we don't have time to go back. I wrestled really hard this week. I promised that I would get you out of here on time because we've got Bible study after this. And so I feel the time crunch. And I really wanted to dive deep into Romans 11 this week at this point. We'll, we will. In God's perfect timing, he will deliver us to, to Romans 11. We'll be able to give it a really a proper, proper treatment. But what we see there, in short, is this. That God indeed did make these promises to Israel. They are, in fact, his chosen people. God did make these promises, and he doesn't revoke his promises. When he entered into these covenants with these people, and he, he issued these promises, he, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't snatch these things back. So it would only be right and good then when he sends his son, the ultimate fulfillment of all of these covenants that he had entered into with these people, that he would go first to the Jews. Yet at the same time, God knew that many, that most, that counted themselves as Israel were not true Israel. They were not the Israel of God. They had the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins, but they did not have the faith in their heart. That many within that crowd, and then even many today, just a small faithful remnant amongst the Jews, were going to truly believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But that the Jews as a whole, they would reject Jesus as the Messiah and as the King. Officially this would happen as we see the Jewish leaders, the political and the religious leaders on behalf of the Jewish nation, rejecting him completely at the moment of his crucifixion. So what we're dealing with here is the Jewish Messiah coming to the Jewish people and being rejected there. So that we, Gentiles, much like this woman, we can rejoice. Knowing that in that rejection, a door is open for us. A gift is found for us. We read these words. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That in Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, that the door was opened. There was a temporary hardening. They resisted Jesus Christ, and as the door was open, that we might be offered in. We're not the children of this promise. And yet the, the, we may be blessed, we may be grafted in because of their rejection. That the offers of Christ Jesus, the offers of salvation, we're seeing it displayed with this woman right here, that they would be available to us. So that we praise God, knowing how blessed we are that they have resisted. Knowing that ultimately this was his plan all along. The Jewish Messiah would come to the Jew Jewish people. 
but his own would receive him not. So he would travel to the Gentiles, knowing that ultimately there's no other place of salvation to be found other than the God of Israel. That's what this woman knew. She knew that what she needed could only be found with the God of Israel. And she knew that this was the Holy One of God standing before her. And she knew that if he wouldn't receive her, she was without hope. Because Baal couldn't save her. Ashtaroth couldn't save her. She couldn't save herself. So of coming and submitting to this one, the Holy One of God, the Son of the only begotten, the only begotten Son of the living God, if he would not receive her, if he would not extend salvation to her, then she was hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. She knew, as we should know, how much we owe to Abraham and Isaac. And that's, that's why we don't throw away the Old Testament. You know, there's people that believe that, that the Old Testament is for the Jews and the New Testament is for the church, and we should just stay away from the Old Testament. But we know that this entire book, from Genesis 3 through Revelation 22, is the redemptive story of God calling a people to himself, of him blessing Israel, that through them he may bless the nations, building for himself one people of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. This woman knew this where everybody else seemed to fail. She knew that there was this thing that was there that she needed more than anything else. So she was willing to take the chance to go, trusting that salvation would be extended to her. Dear friends, unless you get concerned that this mindset, this understanding of the, the rejection of the Jews, of Jesus as their Messiah, unless you think that might lead to some kind of anti-Semitism or hatred towards the Jewish people, we need to recognize that this very same chapter in Romans, it talks about how, yes, we are blessed by this temporary hardening of the Jews, but how much more blessed will we be when God fulfills his promises to the salvation of Israel? We long for that day when there will be a great awakening, when God will send his spirit and he will fully save them as he has promised because his promises, again, are irrevocable. And yet for today, we praise him that he's extended this salvation to us. We praise him that we that had no place within his kingdom whatsoever, we were not the children of promise, that we may be grafted in that we may be accepted, that anyone that comes and falls down on his knees and praises the living God, submits to Jesus as Lord, they will be acceptable to him. And we see all that foreshadowed here with this woman. And he says to her, for this statement, you may now go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and she found her child lying on a bed and the demon gone. So neither Jesus nor the woman are denying his priority to the Jewish people. Again, just showing here that if any will come in faith, if any will come desperate, to the end of themselves and submit that he will receive them. He will adopt them in, that they will become the children. The dogs will become the children, and those that count themselves as children, they will become the dogs. That verse that I read earlier from Philippians 3, 2, where he says to look out for the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, these are the Judaizers. These are the Jewish people that would look to the Gentiles and say, look, if you want access to the kingdom of God, if you want access to Christ Jesus, if you want access to the church, you've got to follow the Jewish ordinances. Those that would force them through the Jewish track to get to Jesus Christ, he says, those are the dogs, and you've now been adopted as children. Do you see the reversal? You've now got a place at the table. They're now left looking for crumbs because they thought that Jesus Christ wasn't enough. They didn't come all the way to Jesus Christ, and they insisted on staying back with the law and the ordinances, refusing the grace that was offered. Now, there's some people that believe that the reason that Jesus gave this woman what she asked for was because of her witty response. They, they view this as like some battle of the wits, like Jesus kind of had a snarky remark and the woman had a more snarky remark and Jesus went, oh, that's a good one. Your daughter's well. But we read in Matthew that it wasn't on account of that. It was on account of her faith. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. That she had faith. Go read through Hebrews 11, uh, yeah, Hebrews 11 this afternoon and just read through the hall of faith. It's people that when there was no... 
There's no earthly reason for them to do the things that they did. Noah building an ark. Abram packing up and leaving his family. Joshua marching around Jericho. These people that would go places that made no sense, that do things that made no sense, while the whole world around them called them crazy, called them a bunch of wackos. But they had faith that the God who saves was going to act on their behalf. That's the kind of faith that this woman had. The kind of faith that perseveres even when you don't hear a word in return. The kind of faith that perseveres even when God's word is offensive to you. The kind of faith which perseveres even when the people around Jesus Christ are telling you to shut up. Because you're an annoyance. Because you don't look and smell and speak and eat and act like them. The people that persevere in that way, that there will be salvation for them. This really was a pivotal moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, it was a foreshadowing of something much greater because he didn't, he didn't abandon here his priority to the Jewish people. He continued on. And yet what he's declaring here at this moment is, yes, just as I've made all foods clean, all people are now clean. And by the time that Mark wrote this, the first century reader of this, of this text would have more than likely been a Gentile believer. And this would have been an affirmation from Jesus Christ, an affirmation that they too did have a place in the kingdom of God, that they hadn't been sold some bill of goods, that they weren't following after a God that had rejected them. But again, Jesus continued on this Jewish mission until the very end. Number one, because in his flesh, he could only be in one place at one time. He couldn't be everywhere at once. So his plan was to focus on the few, was to preach and teach and guide the few to build them up that by the few, the many would be saved. That on the day of Pentecost, when he sends his Holy Spirit, he would make it so abundantly clear with just a few hundred people by the time of his ascension, Make it so abundantly clear with this, this few hundred people and my Holy Spirit, watch the way this thing explodes. So that by the time Mark's writing his, writing his gospel, it really has extended outside of Israel, well beside, outside of Israel, just as he had said, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Watch what I do with these few. But had he not done that, had he gotten sidetracked and tried to go to all the peoples at that moment, he would have failed. It would not have worked. So he focused on the few that they may come to the more. They may come to the, the many. And we're the many. We're the ends of the earth. We were the outsiders. We were the unclean. And now because of his interaction with this woman and because of what we see in this day, we're able to stand firm in the promise that truly he shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no longer Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer clean people and unclean people. There's any that come to Christ Jesus in faith that he has torn down that wall in his flesh. At the cross, what he was doing was building one new people. Not a racial people, not a national people, not an ethnic people. He was building one new people called Christians, the church. And we praise him for that today. Now, we've always lived in the church era, so we don't, we don't know anything else, right? For us, it's almost always been the Gentiles were God's people, and we pray for the Jews because we think they're confused, because they've rejected their Messiah. We don't recognize that we have been grafted in. This is planned all along that we have been grafted in. We take that for granted. We don't understand what a miracle this is. That the people were on the outside were the ones that were accepted in. That we were called in, that we were welcomed in. We must be on guard as well. Because we can become like the Jews. We can, we can fall for the lie that all you got to do to be a Christian is just be an American, right? Or just don't be a Muslim. And that ain't it. It's coming like this woman. Falling on your knees in submission. Confessing him as Lord. Recognizing that you've earned nothing in his kingdom. 
We can fall for this very same trap. How many people do you meet that you say, hey, are you a Christian? They'll say, yeah, my granddaddy was a preacher. No, what? What does that have to do with anything? God doesn't care about your bloodlines. God doesn't care what church you were raised in. He cares that you fall on your knees and worship him. Golly, I'm running short on time. Um, so, so as we come to the end of this thing, we come to the end of this encounter with this, with this Gentile woman, we, we hear the promises that God has made to us, we're reminded that it is grace and grace alone. We're reminded that we need to reject any traditions, any ordinances, any rules, any religion, which we might think aren't just some place in the kingdom of God. And we might be reminded that the breadcrumbs that this woman was willing to receive, and those breadcrumbs were enough, that those breadcrumbs which this woman received, they do not represent the meal that we will someday have with Christ Jesus. That he prepares a table for us. That at the appropriate time, when the bride returns, we will feast. It will not be crumbs. It will not be drops of water. It will be a feast like we have never had. As we sit down, being made perfect and whole as he is perfect and whole. We see our Savior as he really is, and we are transformed to be like he is. It will be a meal like we have never had. It will be a meal like we have never imagined. That we don't just settle for the crumbs. That there isn't just some lesser salvation for us. That the promises of God are true, and they are good, and they are enough. That we cling to them today, and we live in light of them today. Cherishing his word. Cherishing what it is that we do here, knowing that all of this is a foretaste of what comes in the end. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus, you have made a place for us. We thank you, Father, that your promises will not be revoked. Father, if you had revoked your promises to the Jews, what, what possible ground would we have to stand on today? How could we trust that you would not revoke your promises to us in the new covenant? So we praise you, Father, that you are a promise-keeping God. We praise you, Father, through this temporary hardening of Israel that you have allowed us in. The gospel has reached us, and you have received any who would come in faith. Father, if there's any this morning that are here in this place that have not yet come to that place of submission and faith and absolute trust, Father, I pray that you would just break them, bring them to the end of themselves. Father, if there's any here in this room that are deceived, Father, I recognize that it is possible to stand in a pulpit and preach a sermon being completely deceived. So if there's any, myself included, that are deceived and are resting on anything other than Christ Jesus for atonement, for justification, for their relationship with you, Father, would you make that clear? Above all, we want to see you glorified, Father. So be glorified now. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.